presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our ninth and our final session in, uh, in our series, Saved by Grace. And, we've, uh, and I've entitled our session today, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, because we're going to be talking about the security of the believer. Our focal passage for the series has been, uh, has been what I, the first little passage that's in the box there on your notes, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, that I've taken from the uh, New International Version, where Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we, believers, are God's workmanship. And we saw that that word is the word from which we get our word poem. We are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And what we've been talking about over the last few weeks is we've been talking about that unbreakable chain of God's salvation. And uh, just, uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I think since we're sort of tying some loose ends up today, this will be the the time to do it. We said that uh, in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes about God's unbreakable chain. In fact, I've got that verse there uh, in your notes, Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. And again, this is from the NIV, where Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And we've said that it's fascinating that one of the things that we notice in reading this is all of these, in in all of this, Paul uses the past tense. We understand that when we're thinking about God's, uh, God's foreknowledge of his people, that is, that God was intimate with them in eternity before time ever began. God, had, uh, God knew us, knew his own, and had determined that he was going to bring us to faith. God predestined us, says, uh, it's hard to write and talk at the same time. God predestined us, which has to do with our con- being conformed to the image of Christ. All of that happened in terms of eternity. God determined beforehand that this was going to happen. This is all included in the biblical doctrine of election. That is that God chooses certain individuals. What is the basis of God's choice? Is it because we're such likable people? because some of us are better than others. Clearly, the Bible declares no. In fact, God's election is an unconditional election. That is, it is not based on anything that God sees in us. It's based simply on the good pleasure of God to do that. Then, in terms of time and space, 
God <clears throat> eventually calls us to himself, the effectual call. Paul says you were called. God justified us. That means he declares us to be righteous. We have a new standing before God. And in time and space, this whole process of sanctification that we talked about the last two weeks, the whole process of sanctification uh, actually takes place in which God really sets us apart for himself. And we begin to become what God has predestined us to become. He's predestined us to what? To become conformed to the likeness of his son. And in sanctification, that's what God begins to work in our lives is that he changes us over and over and over. Eventually, Paul says God glorified us, glorified his people. And again, that's in eternity. And that's when we are with the Lord Jesus when sanctification is absolutely completed, when we are perfected in every way, when our new soul that we have, our new nature, is placed together with a new body. This takes place at the time of the resurrection, when everything is made perfect. Now, the question that we want to talk about today, the question before us, having to do with assurance, is that how can anybody know for sure that they're saved? You say, gee whiz, you know, I haven't seen God's list of his elect, so I don't know whether I'm on that list or not. Now, I, I feel like God's maybe done some things in my life. I can remember a time that I, it seemed to me that God was calling me. I cried out in faith to the Lord Jesus. I believed in him, and I didn't hear any angels sing. And when I opened my eyes, I didn't see any angel standing in the corner with a magic wand. But things began to happen in my life. My life began to change, uh, just as God said it would in sanctification. But how do I know for sure that I really belong to the Lord? And if I am His, how do I know I'm going to stay His? How do I know that maybe somewhere over in here, that I'm going to screw up real bad one day and I'm going to wind up in a, in a big mess and I'm going to lose out on all of this. So what we're talking about today is our assurance. And we need to ask ourselves, how sure am I? If someone, if I, and I hope this happens to no, none of us today, if we were to die today, any of us, and we went to stand before God and God said, why should I let you in here with me. How would we respond to that? Would we say, well, I'm such a nice guy. I'm such a nice woman. I always try, I'm so sincere. I'm always trying to do the right things. Well, that all sounds very nice, but the fact is, is that God says that there's only one basis for our coming into relationship with him, and what's that? Yeah, faith in Christ, that's right. Faith in Christ, faith in Christ alone. We've seen that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The moment we add anything to that, it's no longer the good news. And clearly, it's possible for a person to be sincere, but at the same time, to be sincerely wrong. I mean, let's say, for example... Uh, here we are, we're living about 100 miles south of uh, almost 100 miles south of Atlanta, and we're just uh, 
Atlanta just got through the throes of the Olympics just a couple of weeks ago, and let's say, for example, that you wanted uh, back at, during that time to go to the Olympics, so you know that what you had to do was you had to go north on uh, I-185, the connector, and then you had to get on I-85, and you knew that I-85 headed straight to Atlanta. But you got up to where that connector is, and instead of taking I-85 north, you took I-85 south. And you didn't see that sign that said Montgomery is where I-85 south leads, and even down eventually to Mobile. And you're just driving along, you say, I don't remember all these cities. This, I, this is all, see, we'd be very sincere in what we were doing, but where would our sincerity take us? It'd take you to Montgomery or Mobile, that's right. You could be sincere, but you could be sincerely wrong. And so we're looking at, at this whole thing. Is it, is it possible to be sincere, but to be sincerely wrong? Clearly it is. What about all of the, the, the very devout Muslims? What about the devout Buddhists? What about the devout uh, adherence to Hinduism? Where does that leave them? Because they certainly don't view Jesus the way we look at Jesus. And that's going to be something we're going to talk about, oh, probably in a few months. So I, I think that would be a, a good thing to, to consider. But basically, what I want us to talk about today are two basic sources for gaining assurance about our salvation. One of those has to do with the nature of God himself and the scriptures. And I think clearly that's the most important. But as a corollary to that and a necessary corollary, the changing life of the believer because clearly God has not only said uh, that he is going to bring his people to faith, but part of the eternal plan of God in predestining his people is that he is going to do what to them? He's going to conform them to what? To the image of the Lord Jesus. And of course, the way that happens is in the process of sanctification. Now, clearly, if we are is if we are believers then our life should be experiencing change in fact we should be changing not just changed past tense but changing God is constantly conforming us to the image of his son so what I want us to do for the next few minutes is in your notes there uh, <clears throat> I have just listed a number of verses and I want us to read through those verses and maybe just kind of bang a couple of things around about those. The first section has to do with God's character and the relationship of our assurance in regard to our salvation with the character of God himself. And when we talk about God, we, we want to look at the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and see how the character of each of the persons of the Godhead has to do with the assurance that we have as believers in Christ. First of all, we look at the, the, the sure plan and purpose of God the Father. After all, he's the one who foreknew and predestined us. That's a, and I put in your notes there, again, Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he loved in advance, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he, the Son, might be the firstborn, the preeminent one among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, 
he also glorified. Now, the question that should arise for us is when we think in terms of the Father and we think about the plan and the purpose of God the Father, do you think it's possible for the plan of God to be thwarted? Do you think that there is anything that we as finite individuals can do to screw up God's plan? We can't. We cannot. The Bible says that the uh, heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wants it to go. God is in control of everything. Notice the next verse there from John 6, verse 37. And Jesus is speaking here. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What, what does just that little, that, that phrase tell us? All that the Father gives me will come to me. What does that say? It's definite that those whom God's foreknown and predestined, what's God going to do? He's going to bring them. They're going to come. They're going to come. Now, you say, okay, well, they come, but that's all there is. No, you need to read the rest of the verse. And whoever comes to me, Jesus said, what? I will never drive away. See, sometimes we drive our, our spouse nuts. Sometimes we drive our neighbors nuts. Sometimes we drive our friends nuts. We can't drive God nuts, and he's not going to drive us away. Isn't that great to know that if you really know him, that he's not going to get ticked off one day and say, oh, Bradshaw, I have put up with this stuff so long. This is it. This is it. You are cast out. No, I will never drive you away. Jesus also said in John 10, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who's given them to me, see, we just talked about that, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I can remember, and I've used this illustration before, so please excuse me, those of you who've been around for a while. I can remember when our children were growing up, and, you know, they get to that toddler stage, you know, they... They're crawling around and you think they're never going to learn to walk and then one day they grab onto the coffee table and they pull up and they start doing this kind of stuff. And finally they get their land legs and before you know it, not only are they up on their feet, but you have trouble keeping up with them because once they get going, they just never stop. Well, when Adam and, and too with Sarah, when they were learning to walk, one of the things that, uh, that, that I tried early on was just to put my hand down beside, beside me and I'd let the, let the kids grab onto my fingers, one or two fingers or whatever, and they'd hold on. But we discovered soon into that that what would happen is their grip was just not all that strong. And guess what would happen after a while? Yeah, they, all of a sudden they'd flop down there, you know, and there might be a few tears, there might not be. What we discovered is that if instead of them grabbing onto me, if I just reached down and grabbed onto them, now they might kind of bounce around and lose their balance every once in a while, but they never hit the deck. Because why? Because I was holding onto them. What does this verse say right here? It says, no one can snatch us out of the hand of the Son. And it was the Father who gave all of his people to the Son and it's the Son, it's the Father who's holding us as well. 
we can't get away because it's not that we're hanging on to him, but what? He's hanging on to us. That's right. That's security. Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish. Now, it's interesting. Not only do we not perish, the believer not perish, but our inheritance can never perish, spoil, or fade. Notice what it says. Kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. God says your inheritance is kept for you. So not only are we kept, but God keeps our inheritance. And he says that through faith, what does God do? He shields us with his power. Any of you Star Trek fans? Anybody a Star Trek fan in? Nobody watches Star Trek? Oh, I like Star Trek. One of the fascinating things about Star Trek is when these Klingon, well, the Klingons got to where they got to be pretty friendly with the, uh, with the Trekkie folks. But there are a lot of other folks who are not real friendly with them. And when some, some spacecraft comes up that they don't know really who this is or they're not sure what to expect, uh, the commander always issues a command, and the command is shields up. And there's this field that just kind of goes around the ship and it kind of keeps things from hitting the ship. That's what he's talking about. See, this is, this is Star Trek way before Star Trek right here. Except this is not some sort of electromagnetic or radiation or whatever it is or any kind of power like that. This is the power of God himself who shields us and keeps us for the salvation that he has planned for us. The Father assures us that we are His and that He will keep us. But it's not only the Father, so also we see with the Son. Uh, and when we're talking about assurance here, we're talking basically about the person and the work of Christ. And both of those things are very important. When we talk about the person of Christ, what is it that we're talking about? That's right, his humanity and his deity, that's right. In other words, when we talk about the person of Christ, we're saying that, that Jesus is God who is in the flesh. He wasn't some sort of phantom. In fact, one of the reasons that 1 John was written, and it begins this way, John writes, the things that we have seen, the things that we've heard, the things that we have handled, we declare to you because one of the early heresies in the first century was that Jesus was a phantom, that if you'd reached out to grab him, you'd have just grabbed air. It was like he was a ghost. He was not there. And John says, oh, no, 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 no. That was, that was the, one of the Gnostic heresies. John says, oh, no, he was God who was in the flesh. The person but also the work of Christ and we're talking about what when we talk about the work of Christ? Yeah, his death and subsequent resurrection, his death on the cross, what he did on behalf of his people. And uh, one of the things that we never got around to talking about this, and, uh, and perhaps we can at, a, at another time, but, uh, but when, we, when we talk about his, his work, we're talking basically about the extent of the atonement 
And when we talk about the extent of the atonement, we're asking, we're asking the question, for whom did Christ die? What is it that God accomplished through Christ? What is it that Christ accomplished on the cross? And there, there are basically four, four ways to view this thing. And that is that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for uh, some sins of some people. That's, that would be one option. Or he died for all sins of some people. Or he died for some sins of all people. I'm about to run out of chalk. Or he died for all sins of all people. Those are the four options, basically, that we have. Now, what did Jesus accomplish? If Jesus died for some of the sins of some people, what difference does that make? If, he, if, that, if Jesus died for some sins, where does that leave mankind? Out. Why, why out? Because we would not That's right. If he just died for some sins, that means there's some sins still hanging on me. He didn't die for all of them. So what we can do is we can eliminate this one. And if he died for some sins of all people, we can eliminate that one too. So that leaves two possibilities. Either Jesus died for all the sins of all people everywhere, or he died for all the sins of some people. Well, if Jesus died for all the sins of all people, there's a name that we have for that. What's that? That's called universalism. That says that everybody everywhere will be saved someday. So that really only leaves us one option, and that is that Jesus died for all the sins of some people. Who are those people? The ones God foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified, Paul said. So what does the Bible say here about this? Well, notice... In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Incidentally, what is the tense of that verb, has eternal life? Has? What is that? What tense is That's present. Notice, eternal life is not pie in the sky, by and by, oh, happy day, one day. It's not that at all. It includes that, but when does eternal life begin? Yeah, it, it begins, that's right, potentially, as it were, it began in the mind of God here. It also begins at the time of the cross. When does it begin experientially for humans? When we come to know Christ, that's right. Eternal life begins then. We have the new nature of God within us, and then when we go to be with him one day at the resurrection, our new our new souls will be, re, will be united with a new body, a body like his. Notice also it says, if you believe on him who sent me has eternal life. It's, it's something that you have right now, not something that you get later on. 
and will not be condemned. Why, why shouldn't we be condemned? We're sinners. Why shouldn't we? Shouldn't we be condemned? Why, why shouldn't we? But, but he says they won't be. Why not? That's right. Yeah, that's what we deserve. But, but why would Jesus say if we believe that he gives eternal life and we won't be condemned? How, how can God do that? The penalty's been paid. The substitution has been made. What's the substitution? The cross of Christ died. Jesus died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. God condemned the sins of all of his people in the person of Christ on the cross. That's the reason you and I don't have to be condemned. Notice also in John 6, verses 39 and 40, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none. How many is none? Zero. Remember the story about the, 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 the shepherd who started off with a hundred sheep, one of them kind of strayed off? And if you and I had been the shepherd, we'd have said, 1% loss is not bad. Let's just go on back to the house and everything will be fine. No, 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 no. God's not satisfied with that that I should lose none of all that he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Notice what Paul says in Romans 8, 38 and 39. He says, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the point that he's making? Yeah, that we are secure. If you are in Christ, that you are secure in him. Notice also the writer of Hebrews in chapter 7, verses 23 through 25 now there have been, and, this, and here the writer is contrasting the old Levitical priests who were still carrying on that function at the time that this was written uh, with the uh, priesthood of Christ. It says, now there have been many of those priests, the Levitical priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. In other words, they got old and died. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What's the point here? Again, not only has Jesus finished the work, but his present-day ministry of intercession goes on and on. And what is Jesus doing right now at the right hand of the Father? He's making intercession for us. He's praying for us. He's helping us get through this Bible study, to get through this day, to get through all the things that we need to do to, to be the kind of people that he's called us to be. We see also the work of the Spirit in our assurance as well. We'll just look at a couple of these. Uh, in Ephesians uh, 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Remember, God uses means in bringing people to himself, and part of that means is the preaching of the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about there. He goes on to say, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance 
until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. It's interesting that, that the, the NIV uses the word deposit. The King James uses the word earnest. What is earnest money? Yeah, it's kind of a guarantee. It's a down payment. The same word that's translated deposit, earnest, is also translated in, uh, in the Greek language of that day by, by this. Engagement ring. What does an engagement ring indicate? It's a promise. And what does it promise? It promises that there is more to come. And the Spirit is the seal. He's the deposit. The Spirit is the earnest. He's the down payment. He is, as it were, the engagement ring. After all, the church, one of the, one of the uh, metaphors of the church is that we are what? The bride of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the engagement ring, and He is the promise that we belong to the bridegroom, to the Lord Jesus, and that there is more to come. Oh, man, I'll tell you what, you could talk a while about this one. Uh, it says also, notice 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. This is from the New American Standard. Again, talking about the Spirit. But we all, believers, we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. He's talking about our visage, not only our visage, but everything about us. We're changing slowly every day, more and more into the image of, Son, into the, image of the Lord Jesus. How does that happen? It tells us in the last phrase, just as from the Lord, the Spirit, the Spirit of God is working in our lives. The, in Romans 8, Paul wrote, uh, and this I don't think is in your notes, but he said, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What a promise. So one of the things, and I think the primary thing that we see about assurance is that it's based really on the faithfulness of God. I mean, to what extent do our works play a part in bringing us to salvation? Does it, does it play this much? No. This much. Zero. Plays no part at all. So, we're, so the point is, is if God has designed all of this and God has been faithful to accomplish, if, if, if we find ourselves here in time and space and we recognize, yes, I know a time when I, I heard the gospel preached and all of a sudden it took on a new meaning and I saw myself for who I was, a sinner in need of, of God's help, and I cried out to Jesus and he had mercy on me and he saved me. Say, okay, well, what that means is that God must have foreknown and predestined me. That's wonderful. What, what an assurance that is. But take it in the other direction as well. What does that also mean? It means that also that if God is faithful to do all of that, what will God eventually do? He will bring me into his presence. That's, that's what the whole Bible is talking about here. 
Notice the assurance that we can also get from the scriptures, and we'll just talk about a couple of things because in our next study that'll begin in three weeks, what we're going to be talking about is the, reli- is, the, is the reliability of the Bible, and we're going to look at a lot of these issues in depth. But notice, uh, for example, uh, what Isaiah writes there in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, under the reliability of the Scriptures, where he says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And what, what, what is this? In our, in, our, in our chain here, our chain that can't be broken, God is declaring the end from the beginning. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And one other verse, and that's the one from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, is really, really a, it's a full verse, but it's a half a thought. But I put it in there because of one phrase, and it's the phrase right uh, near the first of the verse where it says, it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. And the, the scriptures are related to God himself. If God is faithful and God has promised what he would do, then his word, God's word, is as good as God himself is, and his word is faithful, and we can depend upon that. You know, I'm always amazed sometimes. I, I don't know whether you've ever been in testimony meetings where uh, ask people to get up and talk about, you know, what God is doing, what God's done. And, and so many times we, we hear people stand up and say, well, you know, I just want to thank God that uh, 35 years ago, 40 years ago, he saved me from sin and he just uh, took me out of dope and did all these. And that's wonderful. And I rejoice with the person who does that. But the point is, is that God not only has changed past tense, but God is changing us. What is God doing for us now? Yes, he saved me from that 30 years ago, but how is God changing me today? How, is, how has he been changing me over the last week? We need to ask ourselves that because part of what it means to have an assurance about our salvation is to recognize that we are in process, that God is interested in the process and we are in the midst of that process right now which is the next thing I want us to talk about. And that's how our assurance relates to our changing lives. Again, one of the purposes of uh, of 1 John uh, relates to assurance. And I put a a passage there. In fact, part of it is the uh, the focal passage for today that was on the front side where where John writes in 1 John 5, verses 11 through 13, and the witness is this, that God has given us, and the us there refers to whom? Believers. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. You, you want eternal life? Say, yeah, I want eternal life, but I don't want it with Jesus. Well, John says if you want eternal life, there's only one place you can find it, and that's where? In the Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. 
And then here's our verse. These things, John said, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And this word know that's used here is a word that means to know absolutely. You can know absolutely that you have this life. And what John does is he goes on in his, uh, in his first letter to basically posit three tests for us. And in those tests, and they are, they are self-evaluative tests, which means that these are not tests that we're to apply to each other. I'm not to apply this test to my wife or my children. I'm to apply this or to my neighbors or to folks who come to Bible study. I'm to apply these tests to myself. They're self-evaluative tests. Basically, the tests are three. There is a doctrinal test that has to do with what I believe. There is a moral test which has to do with the way I behave. And there is a social test which has to do with my relationship uh, to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now we want to briefly look at those three things. First of all, the doctrinal test. What is it that I believe? Believe about what? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yeah, that's part of it. But the point that John makes in 1 John is that we need to believe some specific things, and it's what we were talking about before, about the, uh, about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Do I really believe that Jesus is God who has come in the flesh? Do I really believe that what he did on the cross took care of the sin issue for me? Notice in, uh, in 1 John chapter 5, this is on the third page of your notes, in 1 John 5, and we won't read it all, but uh, verse 7 of 1 John 5 says, uh, says, but if, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Notice also the, the uh, latter part of verse 1 of uh, chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Again, throughout, what, what John does in the book of 1 John is it's... Uh, it's, it's written in sort of a cyclical kind of fashion like that. If you were going to diagram it, you'd have to diagram it in terms of like a tornado because what you'll find is you'll find these three things occurring over and over and over. John just keeps giving the test. He says, keep asking these things about yourself. Are these things true of you? The moral test. Is the tenor of my life characterized by obedience to God's word? Notice what I didn't say. What I didn't say is, am I behaving perfectly? 
Why is that not the right question? That's not going to happen. That's not, when are we going to be perfect? When we're with Him. That's going to happen over here when we're glorified. Right now, we're in the process of changing, and changing sounds like a process, which means what? That we ain't there yet. But we're in the process of moving in that direction. So we ask ourselves, is the tenor of my life one of obedience to Christ? Notice what uh, John writes in 1 John 5, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Say, how do I know that I really know him? What does he say? If we what? If we keep his commandments. If we do what he says do. Notice verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And then there's a, a third test, the social test, and that is how do I treat my brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I demonstrate love toward them? Notice verse 9 of 1 John 5, the one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And you read through 1 John and you find these tests over and over and over and over again where he just continues to talk about these things. One of the important doctrines of the Bible, and I regret that we're only going to have a couple of minutes to talk about it, has to do with the perseverance of believers. What, is, what does the word persevere mean? Keep yeah, keep on keeping on, that's right. Notice there are some warnings in the Bible about complacency. Matthew 10, verse 22. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. John 8, 31, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. And in Hebrews 3, 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And in Colossians 1, He's reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Whoa, well does all of that mean then that God's gift of salvation is conditional? No, doesn't mean that at all. What does it mean? It means that as believers that you and I are responsible to persevere. We're responsible to keep on believing. But we know that the reason we believe is why. We know that our faith is what? It's a gift from God. He's given it to us. And God is the one who empowers us to keep on believing. God is the one who empowers us to will and to work His good pleasure. So to conclude... And I guess we'll just have to wind it up because I've got one little quote I want to uh, read you as we conclude. The doctrine of the perseverance of believers is really comforting because the believer's security is not based on the way that you and I hold on to God. 
but it's based on the fact that our security rests in the fact that he holds on to us. He's faithful. He keeps us from falling away. It was God the Father who planned it from all eternity. It was the Son who paid the entire price of our salvation. It's the Holy Spirit who indwells us as his people, constantly leading us in paths of righteousness. But because all of that's true, it's also true that God begins to work change in our lives. And that change means that we are going to adhere to the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross. It means that we are going to obey. Will we mess up from time to time? Sure we will. But God tells us how to deal with that. We are to confess our sins. And when we confess our sins, what does the Bible say? God's faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins. Are we treating our brothers and sisters correctly? Those things will be true of us we won't do any of them perfectly, but that will be the tenor of our lives, and this is part of what can grant us assurance. I want to close by reading a part of a little quotation from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. He says this, Not merely does God will to guide us in the sense of showing us his way that we may tread it. He wills also to guide us in the more fundamental of sense of ensuring that whatever happens, Whatever mistakes we may make, we shall come safely home. Slippings and strayings there will be, no doubt. But the everlasting arms are beneath us. We shall be caught, rescued, restored. This is God's promise. This is how good he is. Our concern, therefore, should be more for his glory than for our security, for that's already taken care of. Isn't that a great quotation? God, help us as we think about the great salvation that he has wrought for us in the person of Christ, to be grateful to him. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, For other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.